This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. If you tuned in for our pilot episode a few months back, thank you. As thanks to your support, we've now been given a run of 12 episodes to explore the enticing world of drinks. In today's programme, how do you pay for the sky? Whether you're in cattle or club or even living your best life in first class, a lot of thought goes into what you drink. Our tastes actually change at 36,000 feet. So what works? How is it chosen? And can it really be true that what we don't drink goes down the sink? We'll meet the former beverage buying boss for British Airways, who'll have all the answers. There's a new feature, Desert Island Drinks. Each week, we'll turn to a leading figure in the wine or spirits world, someone whose job it is to bring the world's greatest tipples to your table, to tell us about their favourite drink, the one they'd consume on that fabled desert island. Today, it's Freddie Bulmer, a buyer at the Wine Society, extolling the virtues of Grunewald Liner, Austria's signature peppery white variety that's also popping up elsewhere in the world. And how green is your wine and why should you care? Is bag in box the best format for the planet or should we just can it? We'll talk to a real expert on sustainability and having explored this area for some of my writing work, I can promise you that some of the answers will surprise you. Plus, dotted through the hour, those wine and spirit recommendations hand-picked for you from the IWSC. And you can get in touch with us too. Email us at thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. That's thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Have you ever wondered how the drinks you're offered in your airline seat are selected? Whether it's cattle or club class, uh, those economy miniatures or the seriously pricey stuff at the front, how are they chosen? Do some wines work better than others at altitude? And can it really be true that what we don't drink goes down the sink? Our next guest has devoted her professional life to choosing what we drink at 36,000 feet. Kelly Stevenson was the buying manager for British Airways until last year, and she's now a consultant pairing wines with airlines. Kelly, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi, David. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us, uh, first of all, what you did for BA precisely and, and how you got into that. Yeah, so when I was at British Airways, I was the head of wine and beverages for the customer experience team, meaning that I selected all of the drinks, um, wine being the, the most varied part of, of that selection, across all of the different cabins, 
and the lounges in, in the BA network. So that meant that we'd choose a selection of different wines for the Economy World Traveller Cabin, and they were usually in the quarter bottles, the cute little miniatures that you referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. And then we'd choose wines for um, further down the plane into business class, and then the fine wines of first. But one thing that was always uh, very, very unique to, to British Airways, and only one other airline, but one thing that we always had great pride in was the Concorde seller, that even beyond 2003, when Concorde sadly left us, we still continued to promote the Concorde seller, and those fine wines that we had in that seller would go through and be special editions in first class, which still very much is a cabin that, that British Airways wanted to keep flying when, when other airlines decided, decided not to. So yeah. a really varied selection of wine. And then some wines would be bought specifically for in-flight, for the network across all of the, the route network in the air. And some wines would be bought specifically for the lounges. And obviously a lounge environment is very much like a bar or restaurant where you're on the ground. So on mm. the ground mean factors that are not as complicated as when you're choosing something to be in a metal tube at 36,000 feet. Yeah, so intriguingly, wines do taste different uh, when we're at 36,000 feet. Can you explain, um, without getting too scientific, why that is and what the effect is? Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked me not to be too scientific because, because that will make it a lot easier for me to explain. Basically, it's not the wines that change, it's more your taste buds that change. So when you're, when you're up at altitudes, there's high pressure and there's also um, uh, a sort of numbing sensation on your taste buds. So what that means is when you're selecting both food and drinks for working as well as they possibly can in flight, you're really looking for something that is the best it can possibly be and works to the extremes. So for example, if you want a fresh Sauvignon Blanc from the Marlborough region in New Zealand, you really want it to be fresh and bursting passion fruit and bursting with tropical fruits that it really says, I'm a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. You don't want something that's quite neutral and that has a little bit of an oak influence because A, that's not typical of what you'd expect from Marlborough Sauvignon and B, that's going to potentially show as off balance in the air, even though it would be perfectly good at tasting on the ground. Similarly, if you want a Rioja full of oak, full of that beautiful coconut, vanilla, nutmeg, then it really should show that in droves on the ground because you're going to lose a little bit of that in the air. So anything that really accentuates itself on the ground is great to use in the air because dumbing down of the senses is really what happens inside an aircraft. Ah, oh, it's interesting because I've never thought uh, a left bank Bordeaux works terribly well uh, if you're lucky enough to get one uh, in the sky. And uh, there'll be uh, there'll be a name that I I know is uh, something that I really love, and it just never quite delivers. Would that be the reason for that? Uh, yes, absolutely. So when I said you should look for things that are the extreme of themselves, you should also look at extremes within winemaking that won't work so well in the sky. And one of those things is tannin. And as we know, left bank Bordeaux is full of that delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, which is really deep in tannin and colour. And that, the, the, the tannic structure of a wine has to be very, very aged to perfection, I would say, to, to fulfil its life. What that means is you shouldn't exclude left bank Bordeaux wines from your selection when choosing for an, for an airline. But what you need to do is make sure it's aged to perfection. And by aged to perfection, you need to look at the vintages you're buying and look at when you're going to be pouring those wines for your customers. We had a fantastic team of um, people and there were two gentlemen in particular who built a model for British Airways that looked at the wines available in Bordeaux, that worked with Laplace, and looked at the whole the whole um, 
offering in terms of those cru classe wines right through to the second wines from certain chateau left bank right bank and look specifically at what would work so when they were tasting the wines we wouldn't buy on primer because on primer was a bit risky you'd want to taste the wines once they were in bottle because that could be a factor that mm. affected them changing slightly in flight so on primer wasn't something that we did as british airways as an airline and most airlines don't for that reason you don't want anything that could even change just in the slight nuance to affect that wine once it gets on the plane. But one thing we did do as, as, as a team was look at what really works in flight in terms of vintage. So if we were tasting a 2014 from Chateau Bataille, we'd look at how that would perform in three years time and potentially buy that, but not to serve on the aircraft immediately, but to lay down and serve when it was perfectly ready. And by perfectly ready, you're not talking about preparing at supper with friends or family at Easter time. You're talking about what your guests will be enjoying in flight on the aircraft. And with that tannic structure, that was one of the biggest considerations when looking at left bank Bordeaux. So you're absolutely right. It could be a very tricksy wine if not chosen expertly with all of those factors in mind. There's so much to it. And of course, you can't, especially with a bit of turbulence, really be decanting wines at 36,000 feet either, can you? Decanting on an aircraft is indeed not something that happens um, very commonly. And it's not so much the turbulence that really affects that decision. It's more the fact that you have to buy extra equipment. And if you think about inside an aircraft and when you've traveled, whether you've been in the beautiful private jet or you've been in the first class or club class or world traveler on, on an airline like British Airways, if you think about the space available in the cabin when you're sat down, in the galley area or the kitchen on an aeroplane, there's even less space. So mm -hmm. adding equipment is, has always got to be a very big consideration for an airline. And on top of that, any equipment you put on the aircraft has to have a fuel burn price allocated to it. Because fuel is so expensive to run aircraft, then you and, and obviously with um, carbon offsetting and everything to keep things as green as possible these days and buy the absolute best in terms of the environment, Everything you put on that aircraft has a fuel cost attached to it because of the weight. So extra additional equipment is always given a lot of consideration. That's not to say decanting hasn't ever been done and wouldn't ever be done because as part of the customer experience, the customer is above all the most important person sat on that aircraft when you're enjoying the, the, the food and beverage in flight. But there is a big consideration for putting that equipment on. And you're right, if you, if you decant on an aircraft and you have it sat down waiting for 45 minutes to an hour to serve that wine at its best, by that point, you might have gone through two air pockets of turbulence and the wine <laughs> would be everywhere. So it does yeah. have a practical, practical decision-making process there as well. And what about spirits? Because uh, you're dealing with higher alcohol there and uh, kind of, I suppose, uh, often stronger character. So are there uh, considerations you need with spirits as well, or is it a bit easier than wine? Well, spirits are a little bit easier in that they don't really change much because of that high alcohol and something quite simplistic like vodka will taste pretty much the same in air as it does on the ground. What you do have to consider is something you mentioned, David, which is that alcohol burn. A stronger ABV in flight could be a, a little bit powerful. And where it doesn't really affect your taste buds, it could go straight to your head, as it were, and um, affect people's ability. And, and, and I, I suppose really what we're saying is people could get intoxicated a bit more. So you're careful in that respect. But what that does is provides an amazing opportunity to think up all sorts of classic but weird takes on cocktails and also work with mocktails in the same way as well. So 
if you imagine if you were mixing a cocktail for in flight you might want to add more of the non-alcoholic mixes to just bring down the level of alcohol overall so rather than than potentially serving an Aperol spritz or a Negroni, you might think to something that's heavy with apple juice or orange juice and, and, and gives you the mix that way. And that way you're oh. serving something that overall doesn't have as high an ABV. That's not to say that the wonderful Negronis and old fashions of the world don't appear on the world's best airlines, mm. because of course they do. But that's one way of overcoming it. So it, it's often about the mix of the, the drinks that you're putting on board. If you're mixing them, then think about <laughs> all of the ingredients in that recipe. Okay, I mean, th that brings me to uh, the cabin crew members. They, they, I've seen people get um, perhaps a little bit carried away sometimes on an aeroplane. And uh, the cabin crew are uh, rather expert at uh, kind of heading that off, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the things um, I actually, for about six months of my British Airways career, I actually flew as cabin crew. It's something that the airline really used to pride itself on about giving people that on the floor experience as it were and it was fantastic for me to actually see how the customers react to certain things and be able to understand the process of serving and pouring on an aircraft um, but for that reason I've seen firsthand yes how people can become intoxicated a lot quicker in the air than on the ground and so you do as cabin crew, you look out for that and you're constantly sensitized to the fact that it could happen. So very politely, people have ways of dealing with asking customers to potentially think about trying a different drink or have a lovely strong cup of coffee, things like that, just as you would in a restaurant or bar. It's just it can happen a bit, bit more quickly in the air and you try and avoid it before it get, gets to, to be a problem, shall we say. Yeah, and I've seen it and they're very, very good at it. I, I once chatted to a cabin service director who said that when he died, he wanted to be reincarnated as a Concorde sink. Uh, that was back <laughs> in the day when Concorde was, was flying. Uh, but, and I said, why? He said, well, because the stuff gets thrown away and it's lovely stuff. Uh, is, is it really true, especially in the premium cabins, that those delicious drinks are going down the drain at the end of the flight? <laughs> That's uh, yeah. I, I, I like uh, I like the sound of this cabin service director. He sounds like a funny guy. Um, he he is in essentially correct um, when talking about Concorde back in 2003. You've got to think of it as where's the aircraft going? How long is it staying on the ground? And how often is it is it flying? And when are the next customers getting on? So nowadays, of course, wastage is a big issue and something everybody wants to avoid in every walk of life. So what British Airways did a number of years ago is invest in very good wine stoppers that work both for the sparkling wines and the still wines. But the reason I say you've got to consider where the flight is going is because if you've got a very fresh, let's use the Sauvignon Blanc example again, and you put a wine stopper on that as you've got to LA, the aircraft's been flying for 11 hours, you've got to LA, you've got half a bottle of wine left, it then sits with a wine stopper, potentially in the, in the cold store, potentially not, and then it sits there overnight and the, the aircraft's not flying again for another potential 18 to 20 hours. That's when you might not get the freshest, freshest expression of that wine and you might want to serve it instead to your very discerning guests. But when you're thinking about a powerful red, if we go back to our left bank Bordeaux, that sits very nicely with a little bit of age, as long as the stopper's on it and it's, it, it's, it's maintaining its freshness, you can serve that to the next customers that board that aircraft. So absolutely, nowadays, wastage is avoided at all costs. But yes, um, there have been wines that have been literally poured down the sink and you want to cry when it happens. Oh yeah, well, some of it's just such good stuff as well, isn't it? So there's some seriously expensive stuff in the likes of First Class, uh, Laura 
Laurent Perrier Grand Siècle uh, springs to mind. I don't know if they still do that. But um, is there, I mean, this is a huge amount of money uh, going out the door to, to buy that stuff. Um, because of the prestige factor of the cabin, do the producers kind of give the airline a bit of a discount or something to have that in the lounge or in the posh bit of the plane? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had uh, British Airways, and they still obviously do, have very, very good relationships with chateaux and wineries all across the world over. And it's very nice, I think, when you're working in that environment, and we all know how friendly the wine industry is, it's very nice to have partnerships with people rather than just a transactional um, supply, supply, supply us with products, we'll pay for your products. The partnership element is very, very important. And for that reason, we used to work with Laurent Perrier and I used to work personally with um, Laurent Perrier to engage with the customers, not just by pouring the wine, but offering events, uh, be it that at summer or Christmas, trying to have um, suppers where we could engage with the guests that were coming on board British Airways to show the wines. Laurent Perrier were very involved, were very involved in that process as well. But to your question, if you consider an aircraft, it considers, let's say, an A380 with over 450 customers. In a first-class cabin, there's, a, there's usually only ever a maximum of eight customers. So think of those, say, 460 passengers. Only eight of those are first-class customers. So whilst the product, because of the ticket price and all of the experience you're getting as a first-class customer, is more expensive, it is actually only going to a very small number of the people that are flying on that aircraft versus the wines that will be chosen for the 350-odd people down the back in economy class. Yeah, good point. And if I make a wine uh, or a, uh, let's say a gin, a spirit of some kind, um, this is where you now work, the area you work in as a consultant. How do I get my product uh, onto an airline? Yes, well, it's really interesting actually because I left British Airways just before the pandemic hit last year, actually, to set up Jetvine Consultancy Limited, which looks at across all of the drinks trade. So everything from, like you say, gin, whiskey, soft drinks, juices, and to the wines of the world, looks at what's out there, what do the airlines want, and also how to get certain wines onto those aircraft and onto those different airlines. Now, the opportunities are endless because like I said, you've got those different cabin breakdowns and therefore a different demographic and a different target for each of those cabins. The fine wines of first class, the um, more entry level wines for economy class, the lounge environment where you've got much more space and you've got more opportunity for a back shelf and a wine list that's unending like your Michelin star restaurants versus the inside aircraft environment there's, where there's space restrictions. So there's so much opportunity for so many drinks to go on board. And what I do is I always explain to people that the brand awareness you get from pouring your drinks on an aircraft is amazing. So look at the price point. Look at the price point and think of it as 50% selling your wares, obviously, but 50% is, is marketing potential. And if you, if you consider it and put your marketing budget into the price point, um, airlines budgets have, um, have remained not the healthiest, not the most unhealthy in the industry. So you have to consider what price you're trying to charge. And also consider that the environment is duty free as well. And the same goes for crews on ships. You've got this environment where the duty and tax is still within, within the international waters. And therefore, you've got to look at your price point in, in that consideration as well.
Mm, really interesting. It's a fascinating job you do, and it's really uh, interesting to talk to you about uh, uh, the, just how complicated it is uh, choosing what we uh, drink in the sky. So, Kelly, thank you very much indeed. You're absolutely welcome, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much again for inviting me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time for our first three recommendations for medal-winning wines and spirits, handpicked by the International Wine and Spirit Competition, for which I am one of the judges. If you want to hear more about how that works, the IWSC judging process, you can listen to our pilot episode on the Food website. Our first selection is from one of the new band of brilliant English sparkling wine producers, Langham Estate, which was named IWSC Sparkling Wine Producer of the Year in 2020. Their Blanc de Blanc Brut 2015 won a gold medal with the judges praising its lovely creamy brioche nose with bags of autolytic character balanced out with freshness, rich with an elegant long finish. It sounds delicious, and it is. It's divine. I didn't judge this one, but I've been lucky enough to taste it since. You can go to langhamwine.co.uk. It's £36 a bottle, and unsurprisingly, you're restricted to six bottles, as I suspect it's nearly sold out after all the success it has enjoyed so far. Next, we have a silver medal-winning Falangina, Tesco Finest Desanio 2018. Falangina is a lovely textured citrusy variety from Campania on the Italian coast, the region around Naples. I was on the judging panel for this one and here's some of what we highlighted. Intense citrus with lime, mandarin, pink grapefruit and lemon with hints of white pepper and wet stone on the palate. Excellent freshness and complexity with an elegant long finish. All of that is yours at Tesco for nine quid. And time for a gin. This one's really rather different, but I loved it when I sampled it. Four Pillars Bloody Shiraz Gin from Australia. Yarra Valley Shiraz grapes are steeped in gin for eight weeks. It won a gold medal with the judges praising its rich complexity, balancing the deep red wine character with delicate sweetness. It's perfect for a G&T with a twist. It's £35 at Waitrose or £37 at masterofmalt.com. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now it's time to transport you for our Desert Island drinks. Each episode of The Drinking Hour, we invite a leading drinks professional to share with us their passion for a particular drink or a place associated with it, be it a, a grape variety, a particular wine, spirit or a, a region, to tell us more about it, why they love it and how we should enjoy it. Freddie Bulmer is a buyer at the Wine Society and he's here to wax lyrical about Gruner Veltliner. Freddie, hello. Welcome. Hello, David. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Freddie, <laughs> imagine you're talking to a Veltlina virgin. Uh, tell us why this particular variety is so special. So, yes. So, Gruner Veltlina is a grape which is probably not that familiar to, to many people, uh, but it's mostly grown in Central and Central uh, Eastern Europe. So, Austria really is, is where Gruner Veltlina calls home. Uh, but the thing that makes it really special for me is that it's a fantastic crowd pleaser, and I mean that in the best way possible. So it, it can make these wines which are crisp and dry and, and, and 
really delicious and complex, which if you're a real wine nut, you know, and you really like complexity and you like to be challenged by what you're drinking, it can do that for you. But actually the same bottle of wine can also be really charming and approachable. And so if you're just kind of at the beginning of your wine journey, it can be perfect for you as well. So it really is a wine and a grape that has something for everybody. I absolutely love it. I wrote a profile of Gruner Veltliner for uh, one of the industry magazines recently, and I, I, I was fascinated by the name. And it actually translates, I think, as Green Grape of the Village of Veltlin, as I, uh, as I recall. Um, <laughs> we, we tend to say uh, Gruner. We shorten it uh, in, the, in England and, and, uh, and in uh, America, too, as Gruner. Um, they say Veltliner, or they don't shorten it at all in Austria. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's not the uh, the catchiest of names for a grape variety, perhaps. So perhaps in English speaking countries, uh, you know, if, if we're not familiar with German, it might be one that we would would struggle with. So shortening it down is, is quite commercially sensible. Uh, but uh, some people call it groovy as well, which uh, I know does oh. divide Austrian winemakers a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it on a blackboard as groovy jetliner in New Zealand, which is great because it's it's slowly starting to pop up elsewhere in the world, a variety, isn't it? It is, yeah. So as I said before, it's mostly associated with Austria um, and other parts of, of Eastern Europe as well. Uh, but there's more and more of it being planted in New Zealand now, which is really interesting. So. Uh, over the mountains from the very famous region of Marlborough is Nelson. And there's some great Gruner Veltliner um, vineyards in, in Nelson. I mean, let's be honest, you know, it's still very small scale there. But it is really interesting to see it being being grown in New Zealand and see the kind of New Zealand take on this otherwise very Austrian grape variety. It seems to work really well. Yeah, it does. It really does. I, I've been really, really impressed. It was at one stage going to be uh, the next big thing, I recall, in wine fashion. Uh, what's happened there, do you think? Yeah, you know, well, I don't know. I think it still is on the path to that. Um, I think the, the interesting thing about Gruner Veltliner is that it's sort of trendy and yet underground at the same time. Uh, mm. And I think it, what's quite promising is that it's not looking like it's going to sort of boom overnight because then actually often when things do that they then go bust the next night type of thing and um Gruner Veltliner and in particular Gruner Veltliner from Austria has been on this really good solid steady incline now for quite a few years and I think that that's much more promising for its long-term success you know it's um it's such a, a delicious grape variety that as I mentioned before has something for everybody so gradually we're just seeing more and more people kind of take notice and more and more people gradually try it uh, and I, I think it's definitely definitely on the right path and, and here to stay. Austrian wines are, are rarely cheap just because of uh, the uh, sort of small scale production family ownership all of those kind of issues can you get a decent Gruner under a tenner for example? Absolutely yeah absolutely you're, you're quite right you know Austria isn't the home of cheap wine but it is I think the home of uh, a superb value so you know and i'm talking relative value there and uh if you if you imagine an austrian wine at 10 pounds versus uh, a wine from another part of the world at the same sort of price i do think austria punches above its weight but yeah you can certainly get good gruner under a tenner you tend to kind of find slightly different styles of gruner veltliner at different price points which is i think another really interesting thing about this grape so 
under 10 pounds, a good Gruner Veltliner, you can, you can expect it to be crisp, fresh, dry, you know, perfect sort of wine for summer, have a little bit of stone fruit flavor, a little bit of spice, um, and just be really just a charming, pleasurable kind of glass of wine. And then, you know, as you go up that price ladder over 10 pounds and say more towards 20, you get these slightly fuller, slightly more concentrated uh, and, and more complex uh, examples. But yeah, you can absolutely get good good Gruner Veltliner under £10, but you probably do need to, to shop around a little bit more. And at the top end, I know you're a bit of a an evangelist for it, say, versus uh, Burgundy, which is now really expensive, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I think Gruner Veltliner uh, offers fantastic value, like I was just saying, at all, all the price points. And Burgundy, you know, it's no surprise to anybody uh, in the wine industry that Burgundy isn't the first place you'd go to if you want some good value wine. You know, they get very, very pricey. And the top end of Burgundy Burgundy is is way, way beyond the top end of Gruner Veltliner. But the great thing about Gruner Veltliner is that it can age really, really well. So, you know, especially these Austrian varieties, uh, sorry, Austrian examples, you know, they come from mm. a cool climate and that gives the, the wines this brilliant fresh acidity which ensures that they'll they'll age for many many years and um i, I think you know often they can outlast white burgundy and be a fraction of the price so i think gruner is moving into this interesting place uh where it appeals to people who might you know like to buy white burgundy and keep it lay it down but but actually just don't have the 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 budget for it you know so gruner mm. offers a really really good value alternative i think yeah, I tasted uh, some 2010s at the um, launch of the new Erstelagen vintage last year. And you're absolutely right, Freddie. The, 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 the ageing was just glorious, just a, apps so fresh still, just, just incredible, uh, for a, especially for a, you know, for a, for a white. So mm. what are the names we should be looking out for if we're going to, uh, if we're lucky enough to have a cellar or if we want to lay something down? What, what are the, <laughs> the sort of top end wines that still represent that incredible value versus sort of quality and ageing potential in, in your mind? Do you know, uh, yeah, there, there's certainly wineries that are the kind of top names, but then I think there's slight separate category for wineries that are top names, but also offer amazing value. Um, so, I mean, the traditional, uh, the traditionally most famous region of Austria would have been the Wachau, uh, which still produces some spectacular wines, but you, you really, you know, have a price tag to match from there. But if we, if we leave the Wachau for a minute and uh, move towards, you know, the Camptal sort of region, uh, names like Schloss Goebelsberg, um, names like um, Brundelmeier, uh, you've got Jurchich, um, there's, there's a fantastic little winery called Reiner Vess. Uh, there's, 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 I mean, there's an awful lot. And then, of course, you know, we're, there's, there's a lot more variety than I think probably many people realize with Austria because in different regions you have very different styles of Gruner Beltliner. But, but in, um, in the Wachau, there's some, there's some great names. Um, I mean, you can't really go wrong starting with Domain Bacow. They're, they're uh, the only mm -hmm. sort of cooperative in the region. And they actually, therefore, because, you know, they buy up parcels of grapes from many, many different vineyards and vineyard owners, they can offer some pretty good value, actually. So Domain Bacow are well worth, are well worth checking out as well. The reputation of Austria's wine industry went through the mincing machine with the antifreeze scandal of the 1980s. It feels sort of almost unfair even to be referencing that because it was so long ago. But it's fair to say the country has um, now gone so far in the other direction, isn't it? It, it produces some of the most 
technically correct, highly regulated wines anywhere, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain generation that would probably still remember the Austrian wine scandal in the mid 80s. And, you know, understandably so. I can't blame them, but they're probably very much put off of Austrian wine. But I think you can speak to a number of Austrian winemakers now who will say that actually long term, the impact that that wine scandal had has been very positive because it basically hit a big reset button uh, on the Austrian wine industry. And uh there was there was some big big names who were you know not making their wine in a in a, a very correct way at all to put it lightly but it, it basically wrote off the entire austrian wine industry overnight um and these little producers who weren't involved at all suddenly had the realization that you know if we're ever going to be taken seriously again as a as a uh, a wine producing country we cannot afford to cut any corners at all you know that focus has to be 100% on quality and they've achieved that they really really well actually i think they've done an amazing job at at kind of um yeah achieving that aim this does explain why then austria isn't the home of of cheap cheap wine you really would mm. struggle in austria to get anything much under sort of eight pounds a bottle in the uk um but it's because they've unanimously almost had this um commitment to quality ever since the 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 sort of late 80s and that really does show through and that's why now the quality bar for austrian wine and gruner Veltliner in particular is is uh, very very high i think so actually it's been a it's been obviously a <laughs> an awful thing for a lot of these wineries to go through because it destroyed their businesses. But the, the kind of the Phoenix that's risen from the flames, I think has been, has been really, it's been spectacular. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. The quality is, is just uh, fantastic. And that commitment to it, as you say. Mm-hmm. So going back to your uh, passion then for, for Grunewald, Lena, um, what do you pair it with? It's your favorite wine or one of your favorites. Um, where do you go with your food pairings? Now, actually, this is one of the great things about Gruner Veltliner that I, I should have touched on earlier, but it's such a good food pairing grape variety because uh, it's got this wonderful sort of concentration of fruit, but also this brilliantly fresh, crisp acidity. So it can go with all sorts of dishes. Uh, it's actually really, really good with lightly spiced stuff. So, you know, a lot of, um, uh, let's say, Thai food, mm-hmm. some milder kind of curries as well mm-hmm. can be brilliant because it's... It's sort of a mildly um, aromatic wine, I suppose you could say. Some people would say it's sort of not dissimilar to Sauvignon Blanc, uh, maybe not New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but but kind of classic French Sauvignon Blanc in its in its aroma sometimes. Mm. But but it's it's really really complex. So yeah, so you can either go with the sort of lightly spiced aromatic Asian food, but also of course you can't go wrong with things like schnitzel. You know what what grows together goes together, as they say. Um, so it's perfect because it's got that acidity that that through the kind of the fat dish like that but also has enough body to actually not be overwhelmed by it so it really is a it's a really versatile wine and and i think is a is a sommelier's dream really grunewald lena because of Mm. its food matching possibilities oh yeah uh time to show off then what's the best uh, grunewald lena you've ever tasted god that's a really good question do you know i've been so lucky i've tasted so many and i've had a lot of a lot of wow moments um i was lucky enough a few years ago to taste a Grunewaldliner from uh, Domaine Vacau, who I mentioned earlier, uh, which was from the 60s. And the exact vintage escapes me now, but it was the first time I'd tasted a Grunewaldliner that was that aged. And it was so, it was just remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Uh, and then um, 
another sort of favourite of mine, I think, has to be Schloss Goebbelsberg, um, their single vineyard Lamb Grüner Veltliner, mm. which with sort of 10 plus years age on it, starts to develop this amazing kind of flinty white burgundy sort of merceau kind of character and it can just be absolutely spectacular but i've i've been so lucky to taste so many good ones and actually it's a great variety that really gives so much as you watch it age so you can have if you if you buy six bottles of a particular top end gruner you can spread those six bottles out over you know say 10 years and enjoy a completely different experience each time but that does make it hard to pick a favorite <laughs> i've done the yeah. classic I've, i'm sort of feeling like i'm doing that classic oh you can't pick your favorite child thing and then usually the response is yeah but everyone has one really don't they but, yeah uh, well you've got you've got two hey yeah you're a wine exactly. there you go you can exactly. have two you can have two okay freddie thank you very much a pleasure as always thanks for joining us on the drinking hour thanks david it's been lovely to chat the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time to return to our recommendations. All of these medal-winning drinks given a gong at the IWSC. And this is way out there, pun absolutely intended, uh, an innovative vodka made using what's left over from the milk after making cheese. That is, of course, whey. Black Cow Vodka won a gold medal, praised for being rich, luxurious and majestically creamy, easy to enjoy, yet profoundly magnificent, which is praise indeed. It was apparently inspired by Genghis Khan, no less. Um, the website explains all at blackcow.co.uk, and that is £25. Next, a grape that I hope will crop up in our Desert Island drinks at some point during the series, Ferment. The Hungarian grape with a crisp mineral freshness. This one is a bronze medal winner. Sainsbury's Taste the Difference Dry Ferment, made by the historic Royal Tokai Winery, praised for its varietal character, almond and floral notes, and that is £10 at Sainsbury's. And a Tuscan classic, Morrison's The Best, Chianti Classico 2018. Mostly Sangiovese, it was a gold medal winner with 96 points at the competition. I was on the judging panel for this. We said, stunning poise with notes of red cherry, raspberry, cranberry and dark, crunchy fruits, focused with attractive nuances of graphite, limestone and ferrous minerality. And that is just £9 less if you can catch it on promotion. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now, we know about white, red, even orange wine. But what about green? Not vino verde, but rather the sustainable stuff. Look at a label these days and you might find a certification logo or a few words about how it's produced. Uh, dig a little deeper and it actually gets more complicated. Why is bulk wine still whispered about when it's surely better for the environment? How much does a bottle really need to weigh? Is bag in box actually the best? And what about wine in a can, for example? Dr Greg Dunn is head of the wine division at Plumpton College. Uh, Greg, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Any winemaker you'll ever meet uh, says that what matters most is, is what happens in the vineyard. So it's the, the best place to start. In terms of sustainability if we want to enjoy a drink with a as clear a conscience as possible what should we be looking for uh, in the vineyard 
Well, sustainability, uh, for here I assume you're talking about environmental sustainability rather yep. than uh, economic or social. Um, the best thing to look for on a bottle of wine is, is probably some evidence of um, the wine being produced under some sort of certified scheme. And there are different schemes. So having a label is not necessarily an indication that it's going to be sustainably produced. But if the certification scheme is good, um, you know, then the evidence is there that um, in terms of sustainability, that vineyard's heading in the right direction. If you want to explore that in a little bit more detail, and if you're interested, you probably should, I think you'll find the vineyard environment is quite a complex place. So sustainability is multifaceted. Mm-hmm. For instance, the soil is really important. So to the soil, um, you know, avoiding over-cultivation, avoiding compaction, planting up the interrows, these kind of things are very important in terms of sustainability. You know, we have to watch what we spray on the vines and what we might spray in the vineyard. So we want to maximise or optimise the use of sprays, but we also want to avoid off-site effects. So all of these kinds of things are picked up in a a certified system. Um, Biodiversity, uh, the use of mulches, yeah, um, th- there's a lot to sustainability in the vineyard. And I'm it's not, not sure just simply a matter question. of being organic or organic being better uh, than, than not. It's sustainability, you can be sustainable without being uh, certified as organic, for example. No, you can you can be um, use conventional viticulture and look after your soils and be sustainable. You can be organic and also be um, relatively sustainable, but you can also um, create some problems in an organic system. So... Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it does involve the purchaser actually looking at these different systems and understanding certification. And what about in the winery when we get there and the wine is being made? What are the major environmental factors at play there? Yeah, look, the winery, um, when we look at sustainability, we probably need to look at sustainability of the entire wine industry or the whole production process. And I think when we do that, we find that the winery is perhaps as important or even more important than the vineyard. So the kinds of things that come into play in the winery are how much water is being used, um, how much energy is being used, and what is being done with winery waste. And each of those is a topic in its own right. So certification systems might, for instance, um, look at how many litres of water are being used to produce a bottle of wine. Um, They might um, involve um, sort of sustainable management of your waste. So there are various ways we can recycle or reuse or deal with winery waste. Um, there are products like bentonite and diatomaceous earth that are sometimes problematic. Um, there's a lot of scope for uh, reducing carbon emissions in the winery, you know, with regard to refrigeration, but also the use and transport of wine, um, the use of bottles and the transport of wine. So like the vineyard, it's, a, it's quite a complex environment. But the main things at play are really what what, do you, what are you doing with your water, what are you doing with your energy, and what are you doing with your waste? Okay, and then when we get to that subject of moving it, uh, often across the world, uh, to the consumer, uh, this is where um, bulk wine is interesting, isn't it? Transported in a, a big kind of bladder in a... Uh, in a a sea container rather than as an individual bottle. And um, it is uh, quite significantly uh, better in many regards, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. You know, if if you want to store wine and you want to age wine, 
you know, it, it, it will, will likely end up in a bottle. But in terms of the transport process, you know, transporting um, liquid is it's a heavy, heavy enough medium it is to, as it is to start with. So transporting it in heavy glass, you know, just adds to that, um, that footprint. And there's still a bit of snobbery around bulk wine uh, in terms of uh, uh, it being perceived sometimes as, as sort of cheap and, and, and plonky. But uh, although there is obviously that, that ageing consideration uh, with uh, the wine that's, that's bottled at source, um, it is uh, something that's improved enormously in quality bulk wine, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And look, there's always been a self-fulfilling prophecy in the wine industry. Um, you know, grapes that are destined for... Um, higher end products uh, are te tend to be treated better in the winery they're given better oak um, you know they're, they're bottled so there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy with these um, kind of um, quality issues but with, 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 with bulk wine we do talk about bagging a box later there are some problems with some of these systems like we can't with bag in a box because there's this um, ingress of oxygen over time you know we, we can't really age wine so it kind of depends on how the product um, fits the customer's needs. Most of the people I know buy wine to, to drink it either there and then or, or, or that week. And, and bag in box is really interesting because if you go to one of the uh, Scandinavian wine retailers, there's an absolutely enormous selection, some very high quality wines in bag in box. And uh, it took me a while to realise that actually it's also very convenient because I think it keeps for up to six weeks um, in the, the bag in box. It can keep in your fridge. You can just have a glass if you want to. Great for countries like Scandinavia where lots of homes. So bagging box something that's kind of taken off in certain places, but but not really in, in our market in the UK. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's probably because the negative connotations with quality. Um, I think people would be quite astonished to find out how quickly wine is actually consumed from the date of purchase. And I, it's usually much quicker than what people think. So in some ways, you know, bag, bag in box is appropriate for that. If you do want to age wine, you do need to age it in a bottle. Um, you won't be able to do that uh, in bag in box. So, you know, I think there are probably negative connotations that have flown through based on these kind of quality issues that, that, that prevent people from enjoying uh, bag in box more than what they do in this country anyway. And there's still an assumption, uh, by some at least, that the heavier the bottle, um, the better the wine. And, and that, um, that really isn't true, is it? Bottle weight is, um, is, is a bit of a, a myth in terms of, 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 of perception of quality, isn't it? Oh, look, it is. But it, once again, it's one of these kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, for, 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 for better grapes, often they're given better, um, better treatment in the winery, including better oak. And... That may also be the case with heavier bottles. You know, better wine goes into heavier bottles. So, of course, there's going to be perceived to be a, an effect of the bottle on the wine. But um, just because uh, the bottle is heavier doesn't mean the wine is going to be any better. There's no reason for that. You know, the quality of the wine is really due to uh, the grapes that come out of the vineyard and how they're looked after by the winemaker. And what about uh, closures too? Because uh, it gets a bit complicated here, doesn't it? Cork versus screw cap. I'm a, a huge fan of screw cap for um, convenience and, and reliability, actually, as well. But um, in sustainability terms, um, it's a bit more complicated, as I understand it, isn't it? I think you would have to do a whole life cycle analysis of cork versus um, 
screw cap. So it involves the the production of screw cap and what happens with used screw caps. Um, we know cork in some ways can be a sustainable industry. It's a renewable product. Um, you are in making that product. You are actually maintaining a specific habitat. So there may be some ecological or ecosystem benefits to to that. So it is complex and. I'm not going to hop off the fence on this one right now, David. I just think that it is a complex <laughs> uh, situation and there are falls and against for both of those. Okay, uh, here's another one. Uh, maybe you'll be on the, the, uh, the fence on this, I'm not sure, but uh, bottled at source, um, is that still so important? That's, of course, why uh, wines um, are, are bottled uh, at their origin. Um, but uh, And there is a real association with quality there, as you were indicating earlier, but is it really important? Uh, look, it depends. Um, any time your wine's exposed to oxygen and any time you're going to um, transfer wine, the wine's vulnerable. So in some ways, um, the sooner you can get into the bottle and the sooner you can protect it, the better. Uh, it really depends on how it's being transferred and how it's being transported. You know, the, the, one of the main things is to maintain a constant appropriate temperature for wine as it is transported. So as long as you're careful about your transfers and as long as you're um, careful about your conditions during storage and transport, it shouldn't make that much difference. But there are some vulnerabilities that you may be exposing the wine to. And as a consumer, if we want to look for something that's uh, uh, that's sustainably certified, you, you mentioned earlier um, these individual country-specific certification schemes. Um, that's really, uh, if you're just glancing at a bottle in a shop, that's going to be your, your best shot, is it, looking for one of those logos? Absolutely. In absence of understanding anything else, absolutely. Unless you know the... Unless you know the wine producer intimately and you understand their, you know, the, their production processes, I, I think that's what you're left with. And one of the issues is, David, these certification schemes differ. So there's one for California, for instance, so they don't necessarily have to be a country scheme. There will be, there are certification schemes in Champagne. So they will be for wine regions and mm-hmm. some are better than others and some emphasise different aspects than others. You know, New Zealand has been very successful with their certification scheme. But I, I think that's probably the, the best first step um, to look for a wine that comes out of some kind of certified scheme, whether it's um, certified sustainable or, or even whether it's organic. I think that's probably your best option. And just before you go, Greg, you're uh, responsible for for getting um, our... New breed of of winemaker uh, in in this country. Um, have you seen? Uh, there's been huge interest in English wine, especially sparkling. Have you seen a real uptake in uh, the number of people interested in becoming winemakers in this country? Oh, absolutely. Um, no, the uptake in in English you know, English wine, particularly sparkling wine, has been massive in um, stimulating interest in both grape growing and winemaking. I think it's fair to say. 60, 70% of our students are more interested in becoming winemakers than they are in growing grapes. We'd like to see a few more people who are interested in the vineyard. But um, absolutely, um, the, the uh, appearance of vineyards in the landscapes, the, um, the appearance of English wine in, you know, uh, in, in wine shops and in supermarkets has stimulated a lot of interest in people becoming winemakers and grape growers. But the, but the thing is, David, um, we like to see 
the wine industry as an international industry. There's a lot of movement from country to country um, and, and it's great to get experience in different places and make different wines. Um, so our students are interested in, in winemaking, not just in this country. Um, you know, they, they, they like the concept of making wines in other countries. And from they- that perspective, it's a really nice industry. Great. Well, good luck with that. And thank you very much uh, for coming on to The Drinking Hour and uh, answering uh, those questions. We can only do uh, justice to it in in sort of 12, 15 minutes uh, in a relatively uh, sort of skirting around it way. But it was really fascinating. So thank you very much. That's lovely to chat to you, David. And thank you again. Cheers, Greg. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time now for our third trio of tips, all of them IWSC medal winners. And we're off to the land of the long white cloud, beautiful New Zealand, central Otago on the South Island, to be precise, for Ticano Pinot Noir 2017, awarded a strong silver with 94 points, just one point shy of a gold. The judges, including me in this case, described it this way. Dark cherry, smoky and savoury on the nose. Mulberry and Morello cherry shines through on the palate, which is perfectly balanced with the warming sweet spice. Quite a serious wine. Tacano means seed in Maori, and this wine is £35 at Davies, daviewine.co.uk. Next, a gold medal winning Rioja Reserva 2015 from Bironia. Reserva is a reference here to the ageing requirement for Rioja classification. In this case, three years minimum ageing of that one year in barrel, six months in bottle. The judges said silky and thin in texture, delightful blueberry and plump cherries laced with cedar and exquisitely integrated sweet oak with bracing acidity and superb balance. The finish is nothing less than elegant and enduring. And that's at Majestic Wine for eleven ninety nine. That's the mix six price. But who goes to Majestic and buys anything less than six bottles? Uh, Rioja offers incredible value. It, it really does. And finally, a gold medal winning whiskey to round off our recommendations for this episode. And for some, only an Isla will do. Beaumore, 15 year old Isla single malt Scotch whiskey. The judges said intense earthy aromas mixed with sweet marmalade and a touch of honey, damson jam, plum and currants on the palate with a lick of sweet peat to finish. And that comes from the peat cut from the island, uh, known as the Queen of the Hebrides, which is famously very wet. What a way to end. And that's it from The Drinking Hour with David Kermode here on Food FM for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks to my guests, Kelly, Freddie and Greg, which sounds a bit like a twist on Rainbow. Uh, if you'd like to stay in touch, then follow Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, or you can follow me as well, uh, perhaps do both. I'm at Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us with feedback, ideas, um, complaints, whatever. It's the drinking hour at foodfmradio.com. That's the drinking hour at foodfmradio.com. For now, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Thank you.